0: Hello, everyone. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to another amazing, hopefully amazing, Project Moon Hut Podcast Series program, The Age of Infinite, uh, where we look to learn from individuals from around the world as we are seeking to establish sustainable life on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space based ecosystem. Our desired outcome is to change how we live on Earth for all species. Today we have another amazing guest on the line, George Sowers. How are you, George? I'm great, David. How are you? Great. Uh, let's. See. George has a few little quick points. You can read his bio online. George just retired from the United Launch Alliance. He is now teaching at Colorado School of Mines, and as uh, he's a physicist, so he's going to come at this uh, in an angle that. I'm not a physicist so i hope to learn a lot so george the name of the program that we've decided to title this today is the value of space resources so i'm expecting a tremendous amount from you i hope you're up for it i'm i'm up for it okay so uh, you have an outline or bullet points or something that we can follow so we can all learn together what what are they
1: okay so i have seven bullets so get ready to write.
0: Yes, I'm first, pen in hand.
1: First bullet. Space resources will spur the third great economic revolution for humankind. The first two being the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. Okay, that's a long one. Go ahead. All right, bullet point number two. Resources contained just within the inner solar system are nearly infinite when compared to resources available on Earth. Okay. Got it? Yep. And I'm going to give you two examples. The power output of the sun is 10 trillion times the power consumption of the world. Second example. Just one large metallic asteroid contains enough iron, nickel, and platinum group metals to meet current consumption for millions of years. So it was
0: iron, nickel, and what was the third one? Platinum group metals. Platinum, that's what I thought. Okay. Next.
1: One of the first economically viable uses of space resources Will be liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen propellants from water. Okay, next. There's abundant water at the lunar poles in the form of ice. Okay. Mining lunar ice for propellant will be an economic underpinning for future lunar settlement. All right. And last but not least, space solar power can supply Earth's energy needs for the foreseeable future with almost no negative environmental impact and is affordable if materials come from the man.
0: Okay. So let's start with the first one, first item on our list is space resources spurring the third great evolution. Revolution. T- revolution, ah, the revolution. Uh, tell me about it, what, what's here? What do you, how did you come up with this? What, what should we know? What should I know?
1: So this is placing space resources in the context of human evolutionary history and economic history. Humans evolved, you know, on the order of 100,000 years ago in Africa, started out as hunter-gatherers, and as hunter-gatherers, that lifestyle, um, you know, didn't allow for a lot of luxury. There was not a lot of, in, in economic terms, you would characterize it in, in, uh, in terms of energy capture. So if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're
0: only... Wait, 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 just, I gotta, st- in, in, uh, you, call, you just jumped to energy capture. Right. So is that, is that something that's commonly referred to when you're talking about this space? Is this, is this a physics-type equation? Or? It's,
1: it's, a, it's, an, um, it's, it's obviously based in physics because energy is a physics concept, but it's also a yeah. concept in economics.
0: Oh, OK. I never, I never had heard that, and even in the economics classes I've taken, so that was an interesting jump. OK, in terms of energy capture.
1: It's, cool. a, it's a proxy for wealth, if you want to think about it like that. Okay. Uh, the amount of energy that a society can harness um, is directly related to the amount of wealth that that, that, that society can generate. Okay. So hunter-gatherers weren't wealthy um, in a material sense, and their energy capture was only on the order of four or 5,000 kilocalories per person per day, you know, which is just a little bit more than you need, you know, to eat. Um, And they had, so they had very little energy left over to create artifacts or, um, you know, build structures or anything like that. Um, About 10,000 years ago, some clever hunter-gatherers figured out if they saved some of the seeds they had been gathering and sowed them in, in, uh, you know, opportune spots, and took care of them, that they could uh, reduce the amount of labor it took them to go gather food, and yeah, you know, that was sort of the genesis of the agricultural revolution. Uh, took place in the you know in the Middle Eastern regions of the world, and by those clever means, uh, they were able to increase their energy capture from the four to five thousand of hunter gatherers up to ten to maybe even up to thirty thousand calories per person per day, and what that enabled was you know tremendous population explosion, uh, the creation of civilizations and empires and all the accoutrements of civilization, things like writing and and uh, you know building civil engineering projects, all those sorts of things um, were enabled by. The economic benefits of the agricultural revolution. Uh, of course, there were downsides. There was additional disease and and wars and, you know, crowding and overpopulation and all those sorts of things. But fundamentally, the economic plight of humanity was, was bettered um, by almost an order of magnitude. Uh, around 300 years ago was the second great economic revolution, and that was, was when some clever Englishmen figured out how to harness fossil fuels. This is energy that had been, you know, put away in rocks, you know, for five to 600 million years in, uh, in the form of coal in England at the time. And uh, that enabled another quantum leap in energy capture um, up to say maybe, you know, in the modern days, up to say 250,000. Uh, calories per person per day in the Western world and space resources is the next big revolution which will generate another quantum leap um, through accessing resources that are unlimited with respect to resources available on earth our fossil fuel resources that our modern society is dependent on right now are finite uh, they'll run out someday, although you know, peak oil keeps moving away from us in time.
0: Um, isn't that amazing? It went from peak, peak oil was supposed to be the past decade within this period of time, and, and shale just completely changed that.
1: Oh, yeah. And you know, technology, you know, people don't count on technology advancing, and so our ability to, to find more and extract more uh, continues to increase but nevertheless it is finite because it's all earth-based and uh it also has unintended consequences um you know generating things like pollution and and uh you know potentially climate change so looking ahead to that next that next leap is utilizing the resources of space and bringing those resources within the economic sphere of humankind and that will be the next great economic revolution
0: that's where we get mirth mirth okay. is uh, is the first step on the road It's the first step on the road so we're so across the uh, have you ever thought about uh, just thinking about this moment have you ever thought about what would the after space resources what would be the next one Well space is pretty large yeah. no I know that I just we've got human we've got the agricultural we got the industrial revolution what what's after space i i for a second i said to myself what would be next
1: well it's 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 bringing more and more of space into our economic sphere you know the first step is is mirth or just or lunar space the next step is the inner solar system the next step is the entire solar system the step after that is other star systems um, Potentially the entire galaxy um, there was a, a Russian astronomer um, last name was Kardashev who came up with a numbering scheme he said if you know for for uh, you know advanced civilizations and if you're a civilization of category one um, you control the resources of your entire planet uh, you're able to control the resources of your entire planet if you're a category two, you control the resources of your entire solar system. Um, category three, uh, you control the resources of the entire galaxy. And Kardashev stopped at three, but you can imagine, um, you know, category h- four. Do you,
0: do you know how to spell Kardashev? Uh, I'd have to look it up real quick. That's okay. We can. It starts with a K. I'm gonna. <laughs> yes, K a r t i s h e v. Kardashev. K A R A, K A R A S H E V. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good enough. Okay. So, uh, any more? I mean, is, is there anything you want to add to the space resources component side? And,
1: well, that was that was uh, kind of the first bullet point.
0: Um, yeah, that's. i will just making sure. Is there anything else you want to add to that before we go no, that's on the, to that's, resources?
1: That's the that's the big claim. That's <laughs> the that <laughs> that space okay. resources are going to, you know, create evolutionary revolutionary change um, for the human species, for the good of the human species, and, uh, you know, you can, you can start to think about, you know, post-scarcity economies, or economies that have superabundance of things, almost everything that, that people want or need, and, uh, imagine what that would, that would be like, and, uh, and what that would entail.
0: Okay. So let's get on to the second, the resources within our solar system.
1: Right, so the second bullet is the resources contained just within the inner solar system. And by inner solar system I mean um, everything from Jupiter inward. It includes the asteroid belt, um, Mars, Earth, obviously, Venus, Mercury, and and all of the uh, sort of near-Earth objects, uh, which are basically asteroids that have been kicked out of their asteroid belt orbit by the gravi- gravity of Jupiter and swing down in uh, into the close proximity of Earth. Um, so the resources contained just within that geographic region are nearly infinite compared to the resources available just on
0: Earth. So, so the... The term "infinite," when you use that, how does your mind get you? How do you get I, your mind around? It, it's a
1: it, it's is? a it's a single word that you can use to to characterize large magnitude differences, and that's why okay. that's why my third bullet was a couple of examples, um, and uh, you know one of the, one of the resources in the inner solar system is the energy produced by the sun. And, uh, you know, that's a, you know, that's an energy source that, that, um, you know, powers everything that we do on, on earth today Um, because even the fossil fuels that we use five or 600 million years ago were, you know, ancient plants and trees that absorbed uh, that energy from the sun and converted into hydrocarbons. And then we're buried for hundreds of millions of years inside the earth. So even even our fossil fuels owe their existence to solar energy, um, ultimately. Um, But the solar energy that's incident on earth right now is a tiny, tiny fraction of what's actually available, of what's actually being put out by the sun, because we can only capture what You know, the energy from the sun is radiating out in all directions, and we're a tiny little dot in that entire radiation pattern. And so I made the point that uh, one example is that the power output of the sun is 10 trillion times the power consumption of Earth right now. That just says there's a lot of energy out there to go capture to enable that future economic growth
0: so so within question going back why did why in your thinking is do you use Jupiter Mars Venus Mercury and the asteroid belt what would be the reason and for not using the rest of our solar system
1: it's a, it's it's an accessibility thing um you know it's kinda like starting with mirth or cislunar space you know it's it's close um you can imagine except you know accessing that space in the fairly near future and you can imagine accessing the inner solar system on a you know maybe slightly more delayed but similar kind of time frame you know the outer solar system is you know the 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 gas giants out there saturn uranus neptune pluto it gets to be tougher and tougher to uh, access
0: resources out
1: there but that would be the next step after you Um, start harnessing the inner solar system
0: now could you to some degree say that within mirth there is also an infinite number of resources because we're getting the same sun sun doesn't change for us and we can harness we can't we will never be able to harness as much as possible uh outside of a certain range for us so we've got mirth with the moon and all the resources from all the asteroids that have hit uh the moon millions of them as i've been told and within that space so could we say to a large degree that just mirth itself and mirth being defined as moon and earth in that in that space of about 270 290,000 miles including a radius around each one of them wouldn't you say that we could have infinite possibilities just there
1: yeah, I wouldn't. Um, infinite possibilities, yes.
0: In infinite, the, the infinite, infinite resources, <laughs> resources for humankind.
1: Resources not entirely the the uh, the moon as a source of resources um, has there's, there are a couple of things that are that are uh, I think going to be very economically important for the moon, and I in in one of the subsequent bullets, um, you know, we'll talk about. Uh, water in the form of ice um, the moon is is pretty devoid of uh, of of metals that are readily um, extracted um, and the water resources on the moon are probably somewhat limited we don't really know the extent of it um, you know there's a, a pretty wide range in the estimates of the water available on the moon um it's certainly enough to to really get things jump started and uh and then i would include within mirth, um i would um some other people may not uh many near earth objects which are just as accessible um as as the moon is in in terms of you know the ease of transportation And uh, that dramatically increases the amount of resources, if you include those.
0: Um, And and that's what, in Project Moon Hunt, we are looking at that sphere. So we've got the asteroids that are within, we've got the moon itself, we've got the sun. And if you were to look, and as you said, it's the ushering in of the Age of Infinite. It's the first step, Right. is that if we can harness that, it would change how we live on Earth for all species. It would change how we... I would assume it would change uh, or give us a tremendous amount of resource compared to what we have today. That's correct. That? That's absolutely correct. And then and then it's the
1: the stepping stone to even more resource.
0: So I don't know if you, you cover it, but I do want to ask you in terms of that mirth space, because you have metal, iron, nickel, platinum. When you look at that sphere of mirth, what do you... What resources are there in abundance that we won't have, or we can get a different scale or different opportunities beyond that space range? Yeah. So,
1: so our you know our knowledge of you know our precise knowledge of what resources are available on the moon is 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 limited. Um, you know, we haven't had you know prospecting type missions and things of that nature. Um, to map out the resources we know you know we know that there's water on the poles of the moon and that's that's huge that's hugely important because water create you know from water you can make propellant um, so now you have the oil I, I have um
0: and we can go over that bullet point after i just yeah. we could talk about water after i just what other items I, with what i've been told is that Meteors, asteroids have hit the moon. There are millions that have hit the moon. They're going to be carrying all different types of resources that we, some of them may not even know about. And just not even the context of the moon itself, but from those, there's a tremendous amount of value and resources.
1: Yeah, I think, that, I think that's true. It, it's, it's not well-characterized, um, and I, you know, that's one of the, that, you know, that, that prospecting phase is one of the first steps is to find out what's really there. Um, but, you know, the things that we do know about, you know, for example, the samples that, have, that were returned by the Apollo astronauts, you know, those are, you know, mostly, you know, silica-based rocks, you know, you, so you can think of, of, you know, construction materials and, and uh, things of that nature, raw materials for space solar power satellites, mirrors, solar panels, you know, I think there's a lot of sort of construction materials and building materials, um, and raw materials for manufacturing that, uh, that would come from the moon. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that the moon is going to be a great source of, of metals. Um, there's certainly metals there, but I, I think they're, they're chemically bound in minerals and, uh, you know, we're in, Metallic asteroids—they basically just exist as giant hunks of metal.
0: Um. Uh, maybe, maybe you could uh, argue this point. I think this was the first—the first day I was at uh, NASA Ames four years ago, actually, this month. And we were sitting down talking with Lynn Harper, Dan Rasky, and uh, and Bruce Pittman. And I know you know all three of those. Yep individuals. And Bruce had said to me, uh, do you know where platinum comes from? And ignorant as I might have been, or just not informed, however you want to look at it, I said, mining. And he said, no, it's not indigenous to Earth. And then he went on to explain a little bit about where they came from. They come from asteroids. You didn't go into a large description. And then he said, but if you look at the moon, what do you see? And you see uh, where asteroids have hit. And he said, platinum has hit the moon and there's an abundance of platinum up there there's an infinite amount i mean more than we've used in the history of mankind already exists just on the moon itself would you argue that point
1: uh no not in, not not entirely i i would i would simply say that i don't believe we have enough data to know i i think it's it's a logical point and i think it's 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 probably true um i don't know that we have data that would say here's a big platinum deposit on the moon.
0: so it's an it's a sumptive point based upon the fact that we know millions of asteroids have hit the moon and therefore because asteroids contain platinum or iron or some of these other yeah some uh, some asteroids many, yeah so, some asteroids so the odds are that there are asteroids that have hit and there's no tectonic plate movements and there's no uh, water runoff and there's a variety of other contributing factors. That the chances are that it will be more aggregated. And, it, uh, and, and it if it be...
1: if it if it hit, it's still there.
0: If it's hit, it's still there. Yeah. Okay. That's what. Uh, let's get let's go on to your metals, irons, nickels, platinum, then and and everything. Or you want to have anything more with the power of the sun and what the possibilities are with that?
1: Yeah, I'll get to that on my last bullet point. But just okay. you know, keep that keep that that number in
0: mind. Ten trillion times. Okay. <clears throat> and then the metal iron nickel platinum that yeah was that was just an point. example
1: that you know that, um, a single large metallic asteroid um, would contain enough iron nickel platinum group metals uh, to meet human needs for millions of years and uh, there is one known example of, of a large um, it's a fairly famous example of a large metallic asteroid. It's out in the main asteroid belt. It's called 16 Psyche. And uh, there's a NASA mission uh, that's in the planning stages to go visit that thing. And uh, I think that would be a, a pretty awesome object to go visit. So, you know, if you wanted to estimate the value of that object in in Earth terms at today's prices, you know, it would be in the, in, you know, the trillions of quadrillions of dollars, that kind of a, that kind of a number, numbers of staggering magnitude, far exceeding the, you know, hundreds of years of GDP of the entire Earth.
0: So, let's take just a few of these, because you've only, you named iron, nickel, platinum as the main uh, we, I think iron is an easier way uh, is an easier element. It's an element, right? Yes. To understand N- nickel and platinum, why are they valuable to us?
1: Well, nickel is used in in uh, in alloys of steel. So iron. So, so basically, what you would have in this kind of an asteroid are all the components of steel, um, which you know, which is obviously a you know a valuable commodity and can be used to make lots and lots of things. Um, you know the platinum group metals have have uh, I think specialty uses in manufacturing, and uh, I, I think people talk about them uh, just because platinum is a precious metal, and so you know conjuring images of platinum in people's minds, um, it, you know, is a good way to, to you know trigger the uh, you know there's gold in them our hills kind of a kind of a kind of a notion.
0: Is, are there any other uh, types of elements that we feel are really valuable within either MIRTH or in the asteroids that you talk about? Is there anything else? Because it, making metals doesn't seem to be uh, the, the number one thing on the list. There are other resources that we would need. Are there any others that you feel would have, have a large contribution to uh, our Earth? And our way we live.
1: That our material sort of mineral resources. That,
0: yeah, on an asteroid or, or on the moon, is there anything else? Because we've I know there's something that they've talked about helium three. Yeah, I don't know a three, lot about it. Yeah,
1: helium three is you know has been the subject of discussion for a long time. Uh, you know, the Apollo astronaut uh, Jack Schmidt wrote a wrote an entire book on it called Mining the Moon for Helium Three. The reason helium three is important or might be important. Uh, hopefully, will be important is that helium three is a is a ingredient for fusion reactors, and in fact, uh, you know, a fusion reaction that is based on helium three uh, produces almost no harmful byproducts. So helium three fusion would be uh, would be super clean, and you know, fusion from an energy generation standpoint is is incredibly efficient um, you know the problem with uh, with helium-3 on the moon is that it's uh, it's very diffuse and it was it's been deposited on the surface of the moon over billions of years by the solar wind um, and it's built up in the in the surface you know top few centimeters actually and uh, you would you would need to mine you know many many you know large acreage of of lunar surface to get you know small amounts of helium three. Um, but if you had it, it's it would be as a as a fuel for fusion. It would be incredibly valuable.
0: And, and what about the others? Magnesium, selenium, all of the do they contribute uh, in a way? Uh, yes.
1: Uh, I mean, the easiest way to think about it is uh, every, essentially every element that we need for an industrial civilization is available in great abundance in the solar system um, compared to Earth. Um, there are a few things that are, that are pretty rare, for example, um, you know uranium for fission-type uh, energy creation you know, the standard stock nuclear power plants that we have today. Um, uranium appears to be very rare in asteroids. Um, there may be some indication that there's some uranium on the moon that would be worth <clears throat> worth going after. Um, but again, I think the, those indications are, are pretty sketchy at this point. There's just not enough information.
0: Okay, so so what is the first economic use of... The resources. How do you see this playing out?
1: Yeah, so so I think the 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 commodity that that'll be economically viable soonest is harvesting water and then splitting that water into hydrogen and oxygen. Um, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, happen to be the most efficient chemical propellants known, um, and there are Transportation systems today that utilize it, um, including those of my former employer, um, United Launch Alliance. And once you can fuel transportation systems from fuel sourced in space, you break that tyranny of the rocket equation. You know, the reason that it's so expensive to go to space is that. We live at the bottom of a very deep gravity well, and the energy needed to escape that gravity and to generate enough velocity to stay in orbit is enormous. And, you know, people are making progress and lowering the cost of launch, but um, you can't make progress on changing the laws of gravity. And so that, that barrier is always going to be there. So once you can escape and stay escaped from the gravity well and create economic activity that's self-sustaining inside space and doesn't require transportation to and from Earth to be viable, once you have that, then all of the economics change in a a very favorable direction. Uh, The cost of transportation collapses to just the cost of, of the fuel itself. And uh, that's what we've always wanted, um, whereas today, the, you know, the cost of doing anything in space is dominated in, in large part by you know, the enormous cost of launching from Earth into,
0: into orbit. So they, the first economic use of the resources, hydrogen and oxygen, what other uses besides propellant would we be, what are we going after first? So, is that it? Is that, yeah, is so that the we after, one thing? We go
1: after water, and you know, I've I've talked to. Uh, you know, one of my talking points is that uh, I believe water will be the oil of space. You know, so think about you know the importance of oil to Earth's economy. Um, you know, our entire transportation system uh, is dependent on it. And the same will be true in space, but in that case, the, the resource will be water. And water <clears throat> happens to be fairly ubiquitous in space. It's on the moon, we know. It's uh, <clears throat> superabundant on Mars. Many of these near-Earth uh, asteroids um, contain great quantities of water, um, e- either as, as, as just pure ice or chemically bound into hydrated minerals. Uh, where you can, you know, you can release it by heating it up. Um, And if you have water, you have fuel for transportation, but you also have, um, you know, drinking water for people. You know, people need water. Plants need water. Um, So the economy, you know, the economy in space, and mirth in particular, is going to be, built on a foundation of water, and uh, we even have started to talk about, you know, the water economy in space, um, because it has so many uses, and, you know, a third use I'll I'll, I'll mention is when you have water, you have hydrogen and oxygen, the constituents of water, when you break it into propellants, uh, you actually end up creating a whole bunch of excess oxygen, which is something that humans obviously need uh, to live. So water, you know, water does all kinds of things for us. It also happens to be one of the most um, efficient pound for pound radiation shielding materials uh, that, that we know of. So you can do all kinds of things with water in space.
0: So using it as a, uh, a dome, Putting it within a dome as a way to stop radiation, or putting it within the walls of, of rocketry, or a habitat. You...
1: If you had, you know, for example, the, you know, the the, the gateway that NASA's um, been looking at, you know, water, you know, in bags that are stored in, you know, in the in the, hull of a of a habit, a, a space habitat. Uh, you know number 1 it provides great radiation shielding and then number 2 you can you can drink it
0: so it, but it doesn't absorb any radiation
1: it it does it's great radiation shielding it it uh, it's a,
0: it's a shielding but when you drink it yeah when you drink it radi- well,
1: well you, you know it, you imagine a, a water economy you're replenishing it so you have your storage does double duty is water storage for drinking water or washing water um, as well as while it's sitting there, it's radiation
0: shielding. Okay, but does it it absorb, does water absorb the radiation which becomes bad for drinking? No. Or no? No, it'll just, it'll
1: just, it just deflects it, yeah.
0: Oh, it's more of a deflector than an absorber? Yeah. So it is a complete shield. Okay, so... Uh, the, the next point was abundant water fr- uh, from ice. In terms of, I mean, the earth, I, th- I saw a graphic recently, it was the earth, and they, if they took all the earth and made it, in, the water made it into a ball, <clears throat> it's actually quite small because it's sitting on the surface of this massive rock. Yep. When we think about, um, let's say, the, the mirth uh, environment and then we go further out, how much water are we talking about?
1: oh if you yeah, if you go if you go way out it's you know there, there's enormous quantities of water uh the moons of jupiter the moons of saturn some of them are uh you know largely water um and then you go out you know pluto is is a a, a big snowball but uh you know in the in the inner solar system there's there's quite a bit of water um the moon you know, when the, when the Apollo <clears throat> missions were flown, um, you know, the data we got back was that the moon was, was dry. It was, it was, you know, a desiccated rock. Um, <clears throat> but over the last, say, 20 years, um, we've learned that there's actually water in the poles of the moon. And it's kind of, it's kind of interesting when, you, you know, Earth is, is tilted 21 degrees relative to the sun, that's what gives us our seasons right uh, the moon is only tilted one and a half degrees relative to the Sun so the poles of the moon always receive grazing sunlight uh, just like you know the North Pole would in, in, uh you know at one of the sol- solstices you know the Suns always right on the horizon and if you have a crater or any kind of depression near the lunar poles those are what are called permanently shadowed regions. Uh, they never see sun, and because of that, and that you know, they never see sun, and they they are also looking to deep space. Those regions are super cold. You know, hundreds of degrees. You know, below zero Celsius, or or say 40 Kelvin. Um, and the theory is, is that over, over, the, you know, over, the, over hundreds of millions and billions of years, occasionally a water-rich comet has struck the moon. And if the water was in the equatorial regions, it gets heated up and cooled down. And when it gets heated up, it sublimates into vapor and it kind of wanders, you know, does sort of a random walk around the surface of the moon, um, if any of those water molecules make them make their way into those permanently shadowed regions, they freeze and they s- get stuck. Uh, it's called a cold trap. And <clears throat> about seven, eight years ago, um, a NASA mission crashed a spent upper stage, actually from uh, one of my Former employers' rockets, a Centaur upper stage, into the Cabeus crater on the moon near the South Pole, created a big debris cloud, and then uh, they had instruments that, that uh, interrogated that debris cloud and discovered that there was somewhere between 5 and 10% water in that debris plume that was sent up by the, uh, that projectile. And so we have a one very firm data point that says there's water at the poles of the moon and some fairly significant abundance.
0: So the the uh, the name again that was thrown at that was uh, sent hit, hit the moon was called a. It was a, was a spent
1: name? upper stage of an Atlas rocket called Centaur. Okay. The the you know the Greek. mythical creature that has the horse and the horse body and human torso.
0: So they just directed it towards the moon, it hit, and they were using spectroscopy or all sorts of devices to be able to...
1: Yeah, it was primarily spectroscopy um, to interrogate the uh, debris plume that came up. And, uh, and, you know, they found a fair amount of stuff. Um, You know, there was... In terms of things you would call volatiles those you know molecules that would evaporate if it wasn't so cold Um, there was mostly water there was some other more nasty kinds of things like hydrogen sulfide Uh, there was actually even a little bit of methane Um, and you know any of those things could could have industrial uses on the moon but the primary thing that, that you know has value right now would be would be water uh, for propellant.
0: So you've got a combination. You've got asteroids that have hit, comets that have hit, and then you've got the uh, what the uh, freeze and stuck. Yep. The cold trap taking in vapor that has uh, from the surfaces been heated up. It vaporizes and and moves and then redrops like dew does during the a fog or something it yeah. do drops because it hits and then it freezes again and now it stays at the poles and I think it, it was 21 degrees on the earth is that was the uh, the axis yeah and then the, only one the, and a half the moon is, half one, is one yeah one, one and a half, half,
1: half for the moon so that's kind of a lucky lucky coincidence because you know if the moon was was tilted like the uh, like the earth is those permanently shadowed regions would not be permanently shadowed. And therefore, the, uh, you know, those volatiles would get evaporated again and evaporated and probably eventually, uh, they would all escape into space.
0: So, in terms of, you have the, we just talked about the abundance of water. Do, uh, do, actually, I'd like to ask, do we know how much water? So,
1: we only have one hard data point. There have been other kinds of measurements that have been taken. You know, there's there's uh, currently a, a several orbiters. You know, the U.S. has had one. The United States has had one called uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's been up there for six or seven years um, doing detailed mapping. Uh, there's been other, other countries, India, uh, Japan, have had uh, satellites that have gone to the moon and, and gathered data, the Chinese. And so they're starting to become, you know, a a wealth of evidence that there's water down there. Um some estimates put it as high as ten billion tons per pole, uh, which is a quite a nice resource and would, you know, be a source of propellant for for uh for the mirth economy for, you know, generations. <clears throat>
0: Do you, what does the Earth have in terms of water? Do you know that You have ten billion tons.
1: Oh, I I, I don't Earth know. Way, way way more than that. Your oceans are have, have a lot of water.
0: Yeah, okay, so uh, the next uh, mining lunar ice. How do you see this happening? Is the next bullet point?
1: Yeah. So I so like I said, you know the the, the ice. It will be a source of propellant, which would be a great export from the Moon. Um, and uh, my former employer it was actually me. I, I um, publicly set a price that that uh, would be viable for for ULA to pay for water or propellant in the CISLUNAR, in the Mirth space. Uh, Five hundred, you know, just just for grins, the number on the surface of the moon was $500 a kilogram, and then um, up at, say, a Lagrange point, you know, the, say the Earth-Moon Lagrange point number one, the point that's balanced between the Earth and the moon, uh, the price would be a bit higher, up around $1,000 a kilogram. Um, so the, the prices already exist. They're commercial customers, like ULA. Um, I think NASA would be, a, would be a willing customer if the, if the uh, supply existed. Um, and uh, so the basic idea is you got to figure out how to extract that ice from within those permanently shattered regions. And at and, uh, Colorado, Colorado School of Mines, we did a, a study last fall that showed that we could build a mining operation and meet – the price point uh, that ULA had set, the $500 a kilogram. Um, and so, you know, that was a, a high level architecture study. You know, so there are a lot of details yet to be worked out. But um, first blush is there is an economic, there's a business case today um, for establishing mining infrastructure on the surface of the moon. So, $500
0: for a- kilogram Mm -hmm. sounds like a lot what does that give us at that price it
1: enables the the business case that uh, that ULA was using was lowering the cost to move satellites from low-earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit and uh, the basic idea is that you launch a satellite into low-earth orbit Uh, refuel the upper stage and then move with propellant from the moon and then move that satellite from low earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit and so what we were doing was comparing the cost uh, to do that mission um, using propellant from earth to the cost is if you had propellant uh, from the moon and that's what set the $500 a kilogram price
0: so it's it's basically just an economic number they were saying is you're going to if we can get it there and we can set up a facility and we can mine it and use it in this context it's enough to make it viable correct at 500 correct how do we mine it so how do we mine water so we, so
1: our study looked at three different methods um you know the the first one was was the classical you know, put a backhoe out there, you dig, you dig up the regolith, um, which is a, you know, it's a mixture of, you know, think of it as, as either um, ice cementing rocks together or um, dirty snow. It's somewhere in that, somewhere in that range and we really don't know. But you're scooping up that material, which is, we call it icy regolith. It's a mixture of dirt and rocks and ice. Uh, you put it in a, in a, oven, heat it up, you don't have to heat it very far, you're not melting the water, you're sublimating it, so you're going directly from ice to vapor, and then you capture the vapor and refreeze the vapor, and now you have relatively pure ice that you can take over to a processing facility where you split it in, you know, using electrolysis um, like you may have done in a high school chemistry class. Uh, you split it into hydrogen and oxygen., okay. And then those are liquefied. one of the one of the benefits of being in these really cold regions is that liquefying the propellant, which is normally a very expensive operation, uh, ends up being very
0: easy. because yeah, it's cold. put it outside. It's cold yeah. <laughs> okay. You don't need a refrigerator. Don't need a refrigerator. You got a natural refrigerator. Okay. So you got the you got the backhoe for time. Let's get the other two. What are the other two approaches that we could use? So
1: the so the, the second one is is a little more clever. So the idea here is that you don't dig up the regolith because that that's energy you know intensive. You drill holes, and you place heaters in the holes, and so you're heating the regolith in place from within. And you're vaporizing the ice, and the ice escapes up and out, and you have like a dome shaped tent that would collect, that captures that vapor, and then passages to cold, other cold traps uh, on the side where it refreezes. And so, the, you know, this one involves a lot fewer moving parts. And then the third method is redirecting sunlight with solar concentrators into the, into the apex of a dome and then just directly heating the surface, um, and vaporizing the ice heating from top down and again, vaporizing the ice and capturing it within a tent like dome. Cool. And so that one actually, if it works, uh, would be, the cheapest of all, because it has almost no moving parts.
0: It's and, you, and yeah, and, you, and you're just using the sun as a as a ref, You're reflecting the sun. Yes. So. Yeah. It's like using a magnifying glass to start a fire. Yep. Okay. So then, uh, last one: space solar power. What What did you want to give us about the space solar power? We talked to the ten, to the, the trillion. Uh, power output. Yeah. So, what about space solar power?
1: Yeah. So. So to to, to really make the the space economy take off. Um, at least initially, the space economy has to deliver value to people on Earth. Um, you know, that's where the consumers are. The people that you know, in a free market, consumers drive the economy. And so you need to be able to figure out ways to to deliver value. Um. You couple that with the idea that you know energy the energy economy on earth right now is a is a seven to ten billion dollar marketplace and so there's a lot of capital capability in that in that energy marketplace um, and you couple that with, the, with the, the notion that fossil fuels are finite and that they have, you know, their political consequences uh, to, to utilizing fossil fuels these days. And um, tapping into uh, solar power from space um, fixes a number of the problems that, that terrestrial-based solar power has. Um, you know, number one, in space, there's no night. There's no weather. There are no seasons. Um, And so the direct incidence of solar energy in say a geosynchronous orbit is four or five times greater than it is on the surface of the Earth. Um, So you have that efficiency gain. And then you beam the, the energy down to Earth in diffuse microwaves um, it's received on Earth in a, uh, what's called a rectenna. That's a piece of jargon, but think of it as a large antenna made of a, a grid of wires. Um, and these are large, you know, these would be large arrays, you know, kilometers on a side or kilometers in, di- in diameter. But the beauty of it is is, is it's, they would be an open array of wires so you could put them, you know, mount them on poles, you know, 10 feet high and grow corn underneath it. Or, or you know, it, it, it doesn't, unlike terrestrial solar where you have these, you know, sheet-like solar panels that you can't really do anything with the land other than have a solar power farm, um, with these rectennas, you can, you know, the land can have other uses as well. And so the idea is that, uh, uh, you know, a network of solar power satellites could provide all of the energy needs of earth um, essentially forever in a manner that's completely green and has um, very few if any negative environmental consequences
0: so just to jump for one second again time-wise one and not too long on the uh, diffuse microwaves what what does that mean
1: so the, the same kind of waves that that you have in a microwave oven um, so they're, you know, it's electromagnetic radiation or, or waves like light, but, you know, longer wavelength than light, shorter wavelength than radio waves. Um, and, you know, so, not, uh, uh, not you put harmful. your hand
0: in a microwave, you put your hand in a microwave. That's not a good thing. Yeah. So that those are
1: concentrated um, microwaves, you, these would be diffuse microwaves and not harmful.
0: Okay. So you're just that you're, you're using, and in space you have satellites that are grabbing these with solar arrays, I'm assuming, so similar to what we've seen in television shows, movies, whatever. They, we grab them, and then it's beamed down to Earth and this diffuse, and this can power everything from homes to ships to uh, even the military, I know, has been looking at these type of technologies to be able to f- service um, military men within the field so that they don't have to transport fuel.
1: Correct. Correct. So, so, so the, the negative on space solar power is that these satellites are enormous objects. They're, you know, kilometers on a side, um, to have any sort of appreciable, you know, power output. And launching them from Earth has, has always been unaffordable. Um, if you can use lunar resources, to build these satellites in space, then we've done some calculations that show that the affordability drops right down into the same range that uh, that any other terrestrial power plant is today. And so here's an example of how space resources, and in particular lunar resources, uh, could enable you know a a, a true energy revolution. Um, for earth and completely obviate the need for fossil fuels
0: the out of all this what's the most exciting thing to you out of everything you've worked on with uh, resources or united launch alliance what's what really gets you pumped
1: Well right right now what's getting me pumped is the results of our study last fall. So, you know, if you've been a space geek like me for most of your life, um, you know, you can you know, we've been able to imagine this future of you know, humans moving beyond Earth and settling, you know, the moon, settling Mars, you know, expanding outward into the solar system and beyond. And we can imagine it, we have science fiction books, you know, that can fill libraries and science fiction movies and we can, we can imagine all this. this. This recent result that says, you know, we can emplace the first major chunk of infrastructure, this mining infrastructure, and make money without relying on governments to fund everything and the politics therein you know now uh, in my own mind i'm starting to see the path you know you you can start to connect the dots from where we are right now today to this future of a robust spacefaring civilization and i don't think we've had that in the past i think there's always been this kind of a leap of faith that says somehow all this money is going to come you know pouring in and we're going to go build colonies and things Um, and uh, you know that faith has has not been borne out it's been 50 years since Apollo and we still haven't been back and that's been frustrating and so I I, to me it's exciting to see a commercial uh, commercialization path that appears to be viable
0: well this is exactly the type of information that I was looking for for Project Moon Hut and as you do know, you've heard, uh, we've spoken before at events, and you've heard me that Project MoonHut is desire. One of our one of our active uh, engagements is to accelerate the space and Earth-based ecosystem. Something such as this information that you've shared today will hopefully spark not just the, enthousi- the people in the space industry, but the enthusiasts who are interested in trying to understand what's the value, whether it could be to, for an environmentalist who's concerned about climate change or an individual who's concerned about uh, society and the, uh, the shift based upon artificial intelligence, machine, uh, machine learning, robotics, 3D printing, synthetic engineering, uh, the species on earth that are damaged by fossil fuels that are burned, uh, there's so many different values to understanding this. So I thank you very much for giving us an in-depth look at what value of space resources can deliver to to all species on Earth. So I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, no, my pleasure.
0: So as always, to everybody, you can check out Project Moon Hut. Dot org, where you can participate and sign up into a database system that we're creating. And we're not going to go into details, but it'll be available to you over time as we're working on it. So uh, that's one thing I'd suggest you do. The second is participate at uh, facebook.com forward slash projectmoonhut. You can like us and be connected. And then the last is uh, connect with us at Twitter at projectmoonhut and give us a little tap. and as we move forward, we're, we're not going to inundate you with information. However, we're going to be slowly and hopefully progressively giving you more and more reason to participate in this earth and space-based ecosystem. So to everybody out there, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.